Welcome to the In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Patrice, and my co-host Laura could not join us today. I'm your co-host for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women and wine. This is a space to offer a narrative and chat about both. Welcome to today's episode. We're excited to chat with Kelly Passion, who works at Cornell University as a librarian in the Albert R. Mann Library. Her background is in STEM instruction, information literacy, and instructional design. She is the library liaison to molecular biology and genetics, neurobiology and behavior, microbiology, and the Cornell Institute for Public Affairs. Her primary focus as the instruction coordinator is on curriculum mapping, instruction planning, and working with Wikipedia as a means of teaching applied communication skills. And that's one of the things that we will talk about today with Kelly, along with her hearing some fun stories about her favorite wines. <laughs> so to begin with, um, beyond the introduction that I gave Kelly, is there, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, geez, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, I guess the biggest thing I like to share is I'm a lifelong learner. And um, the funniest thing is I like to collect master's degrees. <laughs> so I'm working <laughs> on my third master's. Um, and partially that's just, because that gives me the impetus to keep going. And I feel like in some ways taking a class is more engaging for me. And I learned so much more with the process. Um, so that's like the, the big thing. And then I'm really developing an interest in science communication. I believe you mentioned that, but that was something I was not into before when I first became a librarian. It just kind of developed over time. Um, so that's my newest area of study. So who knows where that will take me now in the future. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the master's degree that you're getting and maybe like the most interesting course or the course you're taking right now? Oh, so the master's I'm um, getting right now is uh, a master's in public administration, and they really focus on public policy, um, and it's very interdisciplinary. So although I have a background in teaching and in librarianship, I found that um, there have been many courses I can take that fulfill the requirements of the degree that still allow me to do some education and um, allow me to develop some project. It's like project management is what I'm really focusing on and leadership. Um, the SEPA program has, oh, I, don't, I should have looked this up, seven or eight different sub areas, and I'm focused on public and nonprofit management. But I'm also kind of interested in the social work aspect and education and um, equal access to information for everyone, which again, aligns with my library background. Um, so favorite classes, oh my goodness. Uh, we take so many interesting classes. Um, I'm taking a class right now in public administration and I'm fascinated in how much of what we talk about in public administration actually applies to librarianship. Um, and it ranges from strategic planning to uh, ethics and government um, to just coming in and doing project management. I'm like, oh, this very much applies to what I do as a librarian. Uh, so that's my favorite class this semester. I'm taking a huge load this semester, though. Um, so I haven't had as much time to focus on my library work. Well, I know that... Uh you know, we've connected over a couple of different projects at Cornell, but most recently was when I reached out to you about incorporating the wiki assignment into the uh, 
nutrition, health, and society course that we're working on with Professor Levitsky. Right. So um, I was really, you know, excited uh, to hear about the work that you were already doing using Wikipedia in the, I believe it was the science communications class. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got, you know, interested in incorporating Wikipedia and, you know, why you think it's important and, you know, more specifically, you know, why you think women should get more involved? All right. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, so I can begin kind of with a story. Um, my husband's been editing Wikipedia for, I don't know, 11 years. And he was always telling me um, stories about the editing process or being an administrator. And at one point he came to me and he said something that someone had just made an edit on the WASP article. And in the edit, they said the WASP serves no functional purpose in, in um, like an ecological system, other than there are two WASPs that um, one pollinates figs, and I can't remember the other one does. And I was like, wow, I that seems strange. Like nature doesn't work that way, but that's not my area. You know, my background, my undergrad is in science, but it's in like biotech and not in entomology. Um, so I started looking at the WASPs, trying to figure this thing out, and I never did find... Um, a resource at the time because I got distracted by something else. But I was like, you know what? I really need to learn how to edit Wikipedia. So I picked a random article that had nothing on it and it was not related to something I know about um, for herb farming. And as I went through that process, I was like, wow, this is very much like um, the ACRL, which is the Association for College and Research Libraries, has this framework for information literacy and it's like threshold concepts. Um, and when I was doing this research, um, it, the threshold concepts had just come out. And, and one of them is authority is constructed and contextual. So although I don't have a background in herb farming, I felt like I was becoming somewhat of like a small authority on the topic. Um, and it just very much aligned with the, this, this framework. And if you look at the framework, which I, I think I can send you the link for, um, several of them align with Wikipedia, such as scholarship as a conversation. And when you go to Wikipedia, there's a talk page um, and you have a conversation about what you're trying to edit. Um, so fast forward a little bit and I was trying to find someone to um, do a class with me on this topic. And that's when I met uh, Dr. Mark Sharvari and he te teaches uh, Biology 1500, which is uh, the bio lab on campus, the huge lab that most students have to take. And I was doing a cold call and I was like, hey, you know, I want to know if you need library instruction for your class. And he listened the entire time and was very attentive. And then at one point he stopped and he's like, looked at me and he said, well, I was hoping you had a new idea about instruction. And that's when I, all that Wikipedia stuff came out. And I was like, oh, well, here's my idea. And it just, it took off. Um, we, uh, we taught three classes in a seminar um, style, which was just pass fail, but it was just basic how to write with Wikipedia. Um, and then at that time, he met up with someone who is a, uh, a communications professional, and they had the idea for applied science communication, and they brought the Wikipedia over because Wikipedia is a social media platform, and it is a great way to share um, science and to communicate science. Um, so I kind of condensed it all down as, as much as I could, but that was the basic idea. It was just when you write for Wikipedia, you're writing for a different audience and it's for the world's knowledge. Um, and you're sharing the information that we have access to at Cornell, but not everyone has access to the resources we have. So when the students write the paper, they're able to share the knowledge that they have access to. 
Um, and then also they really are very careful about the types of resources they use. So it, it teaches information literacy without the student feeling like it's a library class. Um, and they're so engaged because they like sharing what they've learned. And it, it's not an academic paper that might go in a file somewhere. It, it's for everyone to read. Um, so that if you have any questions that I could uh, elaborate on, just let me know. Well, I love the idea of having students work on something that is personally meaningful to them. There's a lot of evidence that supports that that makes them more engaged in the course. And I, you know, I was wondering if, um, from the standpoint of the, you know, the women and the, um, working in Wikipedia, I know there was an article out recently that talked about there being a very low number of women who are actually going in in editing in Wikipedia. Can you speak to that at all and why you think it's important that more women do participate? Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it is pretty low. Um, and basically the challenges for women um, writing for Wikipedia have to do with the topics that are being developed. Well, there's a two. So one is women like scientists or artists don't meet the standards of notability as created by the Wikipedia, Wikipedia community, but the Wikipedia community is largely comprised of men. So they designed the standards of notability, and I, I don't remember all of them 100%, but the biggest one is to be notable in your field, other people have had to have talked about you. Well, think about women in science in the 1600s or 1700s, or in art. No one was talking about them. It was kind of hidden, or they had to publish under fake names. So to be notable, women automatically don't meet that standard of notability, and then no one's writing their articles. Um, and then the other uh, viewpoint is it's mostly men writing, so we're losing 50% of the population's like perception or a viewpoint because it's men writing this world's knowledge. Um, and then it's also, it's not very diverse uh, through uh, different ethnical uh, backgrounds or ethnicities. So it's mostly white men in their mid to late 20s to early 30s writing and they're controlling the world. I mean, it sounds negative to say they're controlling it because they're, they're just doing what they do. They're engaged and those are the topics they're interested in. Um, but there's just so much room to increase the diversity both with gender and ethnicities. Um, so that's been a huge focus of the classes. And oddly enough, of all the classes we've um, taught, including the nutrition class, it is mostly women engaging um, in the class and they choose to take the class um, knowing, well, maybe not the online one that we're doing right now. I don't know if they knew they were doing Wikipedia at the time, but many of the students in my other classes, they knew it was Wikipedia and they opted to do it. So it means women are interested in it. They just need to get over that the technology barrier that they don't understand how to engage with Wikipedia. And that's what I do in my classes. Do you have any uh, stories that you could share or, you know, anything that some of the girls that have enrolled in the class shared about why they're, they were interested in taking this class specifically about Wikipedia? Um, you mean the, well, it depends on which class because the nutrition class, it's not specific to Wikipedia. So I'm not sure if they knew well, how about the science communication class? Yeah, so the science communication class, um, they students were just interested in the idea of um, science communication itself. Uh, so the reason women were taking this is because they want to learn how to communicate their science. 
Um, and then the Wikipedia component, I don't know if any students made any comments. I did have one student who was really interested in microbiology um, and she feels like the microbiology articles could be more well-developed and not many students, not many students themselves are going into that field now. So she was really engaged in increasing the wiki project for microbiology. Um, and then she was also interested in uh, translating articles into Spanish and that was completely on her own. Um, it's just basically she had a love of the topic, knew that those articles um, hadn't been developed. And then she also knows that microbiology itself as a field is kind of decreasing. So she was really trying to promote her field. And so the Wikipedia was like, it was a, it was a big hit for her. And she had indicated in some of her uh, reflections in the class that she intends to edit Wikipedia in the future, um, basically when she gets out of uh, her undergrad. Um, as far as the other students, um, many of the students, oh, one of the students in the class I had talked to getting feedback for the nutrition class that we had mentioned earlier, and I asked them, they're twins, um, and they're, they're very vocal and really into social media, and I said, what do you think about um, writing for Wikipedia versus writing a paper? And they were the ones that said, oh, no, the fact that I'm writing for Wikipedia has way more meaning to me, and I feel like I'm going to get out there and and communicate with more people than if I wrote an academic paper. Um, so those are kind of the drivers for the students that have been taking the class. Um, and some of the students are interested in um, writing articles for women in science, but I have yet to recruit one to actually write a full article because we focus on smaller subsections right now. So my hope is in the future, I can expand it and kind of uh, try and get women in science articles written. Now, I, it might be too soon to, you know, ha have a feel for this, but I know, you know, when we talk about keeping women engaged in the STEM subjects, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, um, a lot of evidence points towards the importance of having a mentor or seeing the connection between like, you know, I'm studying, the, you know, chemical engineering because it's going to help me deliver clean water to the world. You know, in some way that, you know, it connects to something they're passionate about. Have you seen or do you think that's something that Wikipedia could help with either helping girls connect with possible mentors or just showing them how the subject areas might connect with something they're passionate about or how they might be able to have an you know, impact on the world? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I've seen explicitly that, but I can, I, like, in my mind, I'm a project person. So I feel, I feel like I could develop this as a project. <laughs> um, they did have women in uh, STEM as a, a year long pro project on Wikipedia um, but apparently that it was, it was popular and successful, but it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like we could tap into that and because that should be archives. So we could tap into that, see who was active on that, see what areas they were active in. And you can easily reach out and talk to them on the Wikipedia platform just by talking to them using their talk page. Cause they'll have a user page. You go to the user page, click on the talk button and have a conversation with them. So it'd be easy to, um, easy to set up some kind of library guide. Like I could set up a library mm -hmm. guide saying, this is how you can find a mentor on Wikipedia and just kind of give them a loose guideline on how to do it. Um, I know we're thinking about expanding into agriculture and women in agriculture and international agriculture, possibly next year um, through man. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be some type of edit-a-thon, but that gives me a great idea to maybe incorporate a mentoring 
um, subsection of this edit-a-thon we're trying to plan. Oh, well, I'm so excited. We've got a project and a possible paper that has already come out and we're only 18 minutes in. Yes, <laughs> Um Going back to, you mentioned that you know, some of the difficulty for women is the uh, um, lack of, I forget the term you use, that you, being uh, notable. So, the, you know, there wasn't a lot yes. of topics. Uh, so that clearly seems like a challenge. Is there, how do we break through that barrier and get around that or make more women notable so that they can be incorporated into Wikipedia? Right. So there are a couple ways you can do that. Um, I believe there are wiki projects for women in science. I'd have to find the exact um, women in science. Um, so that wiki projects are basically um, kind of like a way to do project management um, on Wikipedia. And it's basically, yeah, there was a wiki project for women scientists. So the wiki project is based on a, a subject or topic area. And everyone who joins this kind of helps, they form like a group and they kind of figure out what articles are we going to target? How do we rate them? Like low importance, medium importance, high importance, um, how are the articles now? Are they a good article? Are they a featured article? Are they just a stub? And so they work through and kind of um, prioritize articles. So that's one way to get women involved is just to tell them that this exists. Wiki projects, show them. Um, another way would be to do edit-a-thons. Um, if we could start something on a campus as a pilot. So say at Cornell, we wanted to do um, like a little, or maybe wiki meetups, not edit-a-thons, but wiki meetups. And you can create a page for a meetup and then just invite people to show up at, say, Man Library at, on Sunday at 5 o'clock and you just edit for an hour. And that could be the focus. We could say we can work on a project together and then just do this meetup and say we're going to work on this scientist. We're going to work on you know another scientist. We're going to expand this article from a Cornell woman scientist who doesn't have a page. And you can use it as a, like a model or a pilot and share it with other universities. Um, and then edit-a-thons, that's the other way to do it. So we have wiki projects, wiki meetups, and wiki edit-a-thons. Okay, I love that. <laughs> uh, and if I'm not a student and I'm not working at a university, mm -hmm. uh, but I want to become involved in Wikipedia or learn how I could participate in a wiki project. Can you give our listeners some suggestions of how they might get involved or places they could go for additional information? Um, right. So just wiki projects are for anyone. It doesn't, it's not even tied to a university. So you can just Google Wikipedia wiki projects. Um, or if you go to the Wikipedia um, homepage on the left, once you log in, um, there's a community portal. And on the community portal, right in the middle, it says wiki projects. There's several other things, but you can Google wiki projects um, and find a list of wiki projects and you can just go by topic and join them. Anyone, anyone can join, you know, I highly recommend you create a username because the username gives you credibility because so many people, if they don't have a username that they're using when they make edits, many times they're not the kindest edits. So they're vandals. And so you're more likely to not be taken seriously if you don't have a username. So create a username, create a, a little short user page. You can Google Wikipedia student tutorial. You don't even have to be a student to take it. You can just 
use that as your jumping off point. They have excellent tutorials that walk you through the process and then they're always there. So even if you, because it's a lot of information when you go through it first. Um, so even if you go through the tutorial and you forget something, it's still there and you can go back to it and it's kind of um, bulleted out. So you can go to the specific section you're interested in. So you can always Google Wikipedia and whatever the thing is you're interested. Um, you can always try, there should be meetups Oh, I haven't looked at wiki meetups in a while, but you can always look at wiki meetups and see if there are any in your local area and start going there. Um, the biggest thing is to just start editing. Again, if you create, once you create your account, you go to the community portal. On the front page of the community portal, they have an, a big section for help out. And there's, let's see, nine subsections on how you can help out. And that's the best way to practice because you can practice by fixing a wiki link or fixing spelling and grammar, or say you're at a library and you have access to resources, you can check and add references. Um, that, that's harder to do if you're not at some type of library and you aren't affiliated with the university. But if you're a really active editor in Wikipedia, they do have certain accounts that they can help you um, have access to databases. Um, so some of these databases have given Wikipedia a certain number of accounts where if you log in through this paid for account, um, they'll give you access to like JSTOR has it. And I believe there are a couple others that um, if you're a heavy editor, they'll give you access to their stuff that they charge libraries to, to use. Um, so it's, it's not tied to a university. I just look at it from the scope of the university because the Wikipedia editor base is kind of dwindling. And I do think students are one of the ways that we can bolster the editor base and expand it and diversify it. But anyone can edit. It's not tied to a university at all. Okay. And I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the word practice because I know, uh, you know, years ago I got involved with some people that were working on Wikipedia and the idea of going in and editing a page was really scary, you know, because you think like, well, what if like what I write is incorrect or what if I crash the whole page or, you know, cause some other ruckus. So can you talk a little bit about that and how maybe people can overcome their fear? I mean, you did just a little bit and take, you know, some baby steps, but also like what's the worst and best thing that can happen if you participate? Um, the worst thing that can happen is on occasion, well, maybe I should start best. The best thing that can happen is that you make an edit and it stays and you feel like you've changed or helped. Like the herb farming article I created, it's large. It's been touched a little bit since I, I, I created it or not created it, but expanded on it, but it's largely not changed. So it means anyone who goes and looks up herb farming, they're reading my work. Um, so that's kind of, it's fun. And then another thing is, uh, there, there was like a little bit of kind of vandalism on the Cornell webpage for Wikipedia. Um, someone had copied and pasted a piece of, uh, it looked like a chemistry formula and stuck it on the Cornell page um, in Wikipedia. And I just deleted that out. And then I was like, oh, I felt bad because I just deleted someone's work. But I'm like, no, that was vandalism. So I put that, you know, someone had put something in there that didn't belong. And I felt like I was helping clean up the Cornell University's um, Wikipedia page. Um, the worst that can happen really is that you can have a bad interaction with an editor um, and that is heavily monitored. So if they are out of, 
if they say something they shouldn't, they will get talked to. But sometimes they're a little, I don't know, crabbier than they should be. Um, and they might say something a little pointed to you um, that you're like, I, that doesn't help me. And sometimes they're not very patient with uh, people if they make small mistakes. But you can't break Wikipedia because anytime you make a change to an article, you can revert it back to what it used to be if it was something that wasn't approved of by the community. Um, and the other thing, you can always put something in your sandbox. And the sandbox is just where you go to play. So if you're going to make a bigger edit, you can go to your sandbox, make the bigger edit in there, and then talk to the community that's watching that page that you want to change and then have them look at your sandbox ahead of time. And that kind of removes some of that, that guesswork and that fear because they'll come and look at it and they'll give you feedback and they'll say, that was good. This isn't good. We can change this little spot or you need to use better resources. And then you're doing it in your sandbox and not in the space where the article is read in the live space. So it kind of removes some of that, that barrier, but it's really fulfilling when you create this article in your sandbox and you're like, all right, it's good. And you move it over to the live space and it stays. Um, it's very, it's a very rewarding feeling. Yeah, it, it, I can imagine if you make some sort of change and it stays that that would that would be exciting, and I could see where that would build even somebody's self-efficacy up. That you know, I really do know what I'm talking about, and I can contribute to this conversation. Right, right, and then they're usually the communities very helpful in, in helping you find the better resources if they don't approve, um, and especially in the medical field or the health field. They understand that not everyone understands what the highest levels of um, authority are in that topic area. So they're usually pretty nice. And then Wikipedia has a whole like guide on uh, what are appropriate sources to use. So they'll just refer you to that and you go read it. You can ask questions and then you have someone. It's almost like a mentor, but it's more like it's just someone you can talk to and say, hey, I have questions about the right way to uh or the right resource to use. Can you help me? And they'll, they'll usually help you. It sounds for the most part, like a very friendly community. Yes. For the most part it is very friendly. Um, and there are a couple people that are, you know, of course they're not unfriendly. They're just, they really love their articles and they're really dedicated to the platform. So it's not that they're not, they're mean. It's just that they really care a lot about these articles. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they might be more frustrated than others, but largely you can see how much people care and that, that that'll keep you going because you can just tell they really care and it's free. They're doing it for free and they care that much. <laughs> so it's crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. And I, I have one last question on the wikis before we shift to talk a little bit about wine. Um, I know, you know, like um, back when I was getting my PhD and, you know, when I first started teaching, it was a pretty hard and fast rule that you were, you couldn't use Wikipedia as a source. Is that still kind of the lay of the land? You know, that's a really good question. Um, so yes, yes, it is considered um, not a primary source that you'd use, um, but I do feel at some point some of the articles are going to be um, so well written that there's the potential for them to be used, but how that gets established, I don't know. There's some time. Um, there's some of the chemistry articles are fantastic. I, they're so well written and they're high level. Like I can't understand it. And 
I don't have a chemistry background, but it's, it's, it's hardcore chemistry. It's not messing around. Um, so some of these articles have the potential to be like standard articles that you could cite, but you don't know what they are. Like a random student or a random person's not going to know which ones they are. Um, so there's some work to be done there. Um, but there are many of them that it's, it's a great starting point. And first of all, because some of these articles, since they're more well-developed, they'll have all the key words in there that you might possibly need as you search for resources on your topic. Um, and then they also have references, and some of them have a very lengthy reference list. So anytime you're reading a subject, um, a subsection on an area that you're interested in on Wikipedia, you can say, well, what articles are they citing? You can click on the little number, it goes down to the ref list, and you can find that article. And if it's an article you're interested in and you're at a university, you can see if we have access to it. And if we don't, you can still interlibrate loan it and get it from somewhere else. And you can use that article yourself. So it's a great starting point for keyword development, for basic understanding of the topic area, and for finding resources. Um, and then because the process of editing for certain articles is so um, I don't, rigorous, you, you know that you can trust some of these sources. Okay, that's really helpful. And so it sounds like it is it is a good starting point, even it's if a you great don't list. Starting point. Okay, okay. Um, and I know pretty much any time I Google anything, Wikipedia is typically the first thing that comes. Yeah. Up. <laughs> <laughs> so why say don't use it? Just teach people how to use it correctly, um, and then they can use it as their launch point. Um, there's just a few steps to use it correctly, and you're like, okay, I got it, and then you know how to start. Uh, I, I think what you just said could be applied to so many things. Like instead of banning something, let's teach people how to use it well and how to make sense of things. And Oh, and then let's also yeah. engage with it and make it better ourselves. You know, yeah. why, why can't we? If we don't think it's um, authoritative, well, we have all these professors and students and doctoral students and grad students. I mean, they have some level of knowledge and authority. They can make it more authoritative. So until people actually read the article and engage with it, I have a hard time when professors are like, oh, no, it's just horrible. You never use Wikipedia. I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> actually learn how the process of editing happens and then make your decision on whether or not someone can use it to start. Yeah, I guess uh, one step at a time. I, right, you know, I, yes. I think about... Uh, you know, you, the Wikipedia assignment in the nutrition course and your science communication that maybe as people start to hear about that word will spread and um, it'll, it'll, it'll get more used and people will at least be talking about it more. Exactly. And they'll, they'll make it more authoritative. That's, that's the way. Hmm. So speaking of authoritative, uh, let's talk a little bit about your favorite wine or what you happen to be drinking tonight. Well, I'm not, I do drink wine. I like wine, but I'm more of a beer drinker. Well, let's talk about beer. Yeah. And <laughs> we live in an area where there's a lot of, I mean, we have a lot of good wine around here, but we have a lot of good craft beer and there's a lot of good local breweries around us. Um, and then, you know, hops are important to New York, even though they had that whole uh, mildew blight that happens. Oh, back when was, do you do you happen to know when that was? Nineteen hundreds? I don't know. Yeah, so like New York used to be a huge hop growing region, and then they had this blight that wiped out all of them, and so that's why a lot of the hops are from Washington and Oregon now. 
So I know Cornell's working on trying to develop um, different varieties of hops that can resist the blight. Um, but that being said, New York has a fabulous craft beer scene. So it's really hard to not drink all these fabulous beers. Um, and the wines in the area are good, but they tend to be more sweet. And I'm a dry wine drinker. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm going to go for beer. <laughs> so what are some of your uh, favorite local beers to drink? Uh, well, my favorite local, well, say I drink a lot of variety of beer. So my favorite local breweries would be Ithaca Beer is pretty solid. Um, and that, I mean, I know it sounds weird because I'm in Ithaca, but it, it's a solid beer. It's, it's delicious. But my other favorite that is only about 45 minutes away is called Lucky Hair. And I, they have new terms for them now. There's like microbreweries and nanobreweries. Mm-hmm. I think he might be micro. Um, so he started as a home brewer, brewer um, and just decided to start going into business. And um, he makes the best beers. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and he's located in Hector but I believe they're opening a facility in Watkins Glen. Um, he wants some type of grant to open a facility through the New York Brewers Association. Um, and what are some other good beers? I also like Omegang, which is another mm-hmm. uh, New York beer, but that's in Cooperstown and that's a little farther away. So it's hard to get over there. And they're, they're big. They're, they're very well known there. You can find them across the whole United States now. And even, I think I've seen them in Norway when I was visiting a friend. So it's, it's an international beer. Wow. Yeah. So there are so many, but if anyone needs to know a good brewery in the area, just talk to me because I, I have the Intel. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not a big beer drinker myself, but on a hot summer day going over to Ithaca beer company is, oh, yeah. is not a bad way to spend the afternoon. It's so refreshing. And it's a lovely, a lovely area. So yeah outside and watch the kids play because it's, it's a family thing now like people bring their kids to these breweries and um and everyone's just relaxed it's not it's not like going to a bar it's just relaxed right yeah which we, which we all need right exactly and so yeah that's what this is all yeah. about yeah um now in a previous episode we talked a bit about wine glasses you know kind of discussing that question you know does the glass matter you know should you spend a lot of money or not um based on your expertise in beer does the glass the beer mug or glass matter and do you have a favorite style um favorite style of glass or favorite style of beer uh both (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, I believe the glass matters. I don't know how it affects the taste because I haven't scientifically tried that out, but I, it, it just feels good to match the glass to the style of beer, <laughs> um, which I didn't do today. I, I had this fancy glass that I don't even know the style it's called, but it's like a goblet style, mm-hmm. but it's not a tulip. It's kind of a weird, it reminds me of like an Erlenmeyer flask almost. So I guess it makes me feel scientific when I'm drinking beer. <laughs> Um, so sometimes I just like a glass that's interesting, interestingly shaped. Um, but I do try and match my beer to the glass, but it's kind of hard because then you have to buy a lot of glassware, (laughs) um, because there's so many styles of beer. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy how many styles of glassware we have. Um, so my favorite beers generally are the lighter colored ones. Um, that doesn't mean they're lighter in flavor or in taste. It's just a lighter color. I'm not a dark beer drinker. 
Um, so I like Belgian beer or Belgian style beer, uh, Pilsners, lagers, IPAs. I love IPAs, pale ales. Uh, what are some other light ones? Session ales, strong, oh, strong ales are darker. Um, I drink a lot of beer. It's so hard, <laughs> so hard to pick. Um, but for the, the summer day that we're all dreaming about right now, totally IPAs or a sessionable IPA, which means it's lighter, um, ABV. So it's not, it's like 4%. So you can drink a couple of those and just be mellow. Um, and they're just still very tasty and have that IPA flavor without making you feel like you're going overboard. Yeah, I I like an IPA myself. That's definitely my favorite my favorite kind. Nice. Um, Are you a hop one? Like, do you like the heavily hopped IPAs or too much hops are not good? No, I like it a little hoppy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe this summer we'll we'll get together for one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, have you ever taken? Uh, I know there are courses in wine tasting. Are there courses in beer tasting? Ah, uh, there's. I don't know if there's beer. I know there's a beer course. I think it has some, I think there is, but it's not the tasting. It's how to make it. Okay. Like all the, like there's some chemistry to it, but I believe that you get to taste it also. Um, but I haven't taken any of them at all. So I do know the cider class though. There's a cider one. They're using uh, Wikipedia as their writing assignment. Just saying. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I, I helped uh, mentor the librarian that's working with them on that, but she's taken off with it. She has the whole classroom dashboard and they're all learning about how to make cider, but they're going to expand a couple Wikipedia articles on the process. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. really exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. So someday I'll take one of those classes. Yeah. Um, now, have you ever made your own beer? No, <laughs> I just, that, that looks like a process. That's not something I've ever wanted to do. I just want to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and let, let somebody else do the making, right? <laughs> yeah, someone else can make it. I'll just, I'll test it for them. Yeah. Let me try some. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, we, we touched on a little bit when we were talking about the Wikipedia switching subjects a little bit is uh -huh. um, engaging women in STEM. And, you know, what are those things? Because, you know, we find, like, we, we lose a lot of girls in middle school. And then if they do make it to college, sophomore year seems to be uh, when we lose them. So I was just curious. Um, I know you got a – your undergraduate degree is in molecular biosciences. What got you interested in that? And did you have any challenges or support systems in place that you felt like, you know, helped you get through it? Oh, <laughs> um, science has always been um, my favorite subject area since the time I was, I don't know, eight or nine. I had a microscope when I was a kid. Um, I came from a very poor family, but there, that didn't happen until like I was seven or eight. So at some point I got a microscope for Christmas um, and then we had no money left. So like we never, I never had a fancy gift after that. Uh, not that that's bad. <laughs> I had one, even though we were really poor. And then I just, I played with it constantly. I didn't make my own slides, but I, I enjoyed the process of microscopy. Um, and then I had a fourth grade teacher who loved science. And so he convinced the seventh grade teacher to let us fourth graders borrow the, the microscopes, the fancy ones they use for, cause I went to a K through eight school that was before mm -hmm. middle schools and junior highs were really big. Um, and he, we learned microscopy, which I really related to because I had a microscope, but these were fancy microscopes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we were making our own slides and we were learning about cell biology. 
Um, and then fast forward a little bit, I've learned that from a pedagogy standpoint, that's supposed to be too early to learn all that, but it, it didn't matter that I didn't understand all of the science. What mattered what I was, was that I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And it kept me interested in science. Um, and cell biology was still one of my favorite topics and genetics, um, but it was always my favorite subject area. However, when I went to college the first time, I did kind of, um, this was before there was a lot of support for people who were the first generation going to college. Mm-hmm. And there was that whole weed out kind of culture where if you took a class and you failed it, that you were expected you, you shouldn't be at college because you couldn't handle it. Um, so I basically got weeded out the first time. But um, when I was in high school, we didn't have AP classes at my school because it was a poor area. Um, so my mom encouraged me to enroll in the community college. So while I was in high school, I would take community college credits. So when I graduated high school, I had 74 credits from the community college. Wow. Most of them were in science. Um, and that was also the other reason I kind of got weeded out because I didn't get to go through the normal freshman classes. I skipped straight into like junior and senior classes mm-hmm. and I was 18 and no one in my family had ever gone to college. So I had no prep. And they didn't have services. At least I never got, like, no one reached out to me and I never found the services. Um, This would have been, like, the very early 90s. Um, But because I had so many credits, I knew I needed to go back to school. And I knew my favorite subject area in the sciences was the the cell biology and uh, molecular biology and the genetics. And so that's kind of, it was just my own personal, I have to go back to school um, and I'm going to get a degree. I have to be interested in the topic area. Otherwise I wasn't going to finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was so interested, I just you know, took two classes a semester for five years and I eventually graduated. Um, but by then I had already had a career. So to go into science, I would have had to take like a good $15,000 pay cut and I had a family. So that's kind of what kept me from going into the sciences at that point. Um, because I didn't want to get a job in a lab and like lose, you know, $15,000 when I had kids that I had to take care of. So um, that didn't stop me though. Cause then I became a science teacher and then I taught chemistry, physics, and biology to high school students. And I was really big on encouraging the students. Um, and it was in a poor area also. And some of the students had never been told they could go to college. Um, so it was just, I felt like I was giving back and encouraging students to go into science. Um, and then I decided to combine all that and become a librarian. And so now I do education, some science teaching, um, and then librarianship. So I, I made it all work. Well, there's, there's so much in that, that I would love to unpack a little more, uh, (laughs) And of course, my my dissertation was on women who returned to school to study STEM. So oh, many of the women I interviewed had similar stories. But you know, one of the things that jumped out at me, you mentioned that you were first gen. And a lot yeah. of times, the students don't have anyone to guide them through that college process because... Yeah. They're, of course, the first ones. But it sounds like your your mom encouraged you to take the community college classes. So she must, did she have some knowledge or how did, she, do you recall how she knew that that was like something that she thought um, you should do? Well, you know, I vaguely I do. Um, 
she's kind of competitive with uh, her brothers and sisters. And so my cousins, so she, and then she always, she was always my biggest advocate and also my biggest critic. Um, so she was critical of my um, ability to, cause I, I was kind of a, uh, well, I don't know if I was lazy cause it's possible I might have ADHD cause my daughter got diagnosed with it. So I went through all this, not knowing I might have that. Um, but I was like, I didn't focus on school as much, but I was considered really smart. So that was just her way of pushing it. And then because the school I went to didn't have AP courses, like the, that was only the big cities had AP courses at that time. Um, and we had honors type courses, but it wasn't quite that edge I needed. And so she figured since we were by a community college, um, that would give me that extra. It, she felt like it was almost like AP so that was why she encouraged me to do it. Um, but I enjoyed it. And so that's kind of why I stuck with it. Because my sister did not take as many classes as I did. Um, she wasn't interested in the community college. I just, I, I don't know, for some reason I enjoyed it. Um, because I like to be really busy, I think. Because that's what I do now. I work full time and then I'm taking a lot of classes. So I just like to be busy all the time. Um, so I think she just somehow recognized that I needed to be taking something a little more rigorous, but she didn't know how to help me with that. So like, I never, I never studied. She never sat down and made me do my homework. Like that wasn't there. It was just, yes, you can take community college classes and you should take these science classes or because she knew I was really interested in science. So I would pick my own classes actually. Um, but that was it. Like it was, there was no, no guidance from them because they didn't know I was just take these classes and I say, okay, I'll, I'll go to school. Well, of course, you know, you mentioned your fourth grade teacher and I think in every story there's always a, right. There's always, always a, a teacher. teacher that makes such a difference in a student's life. Yes. Did, did you find when you went back to college that you had either, you know, somebody who provided you guidance either, you know, within the college setting or somebody in your personal life? Um, no, no, no one in the college setting, but at that point I had worked, um, cause I worked for a university, um, and I worked in the libraries. I was not a librarian, but I was um, a library like, supervisor because I saw the students come in and they were at, I, I would help them find articles, um, and help them do the research and kind of teach a little bit. Um, I kind of knew the process because I was working at a university. Um, so I didn't really have anyone. And in fact, because I was non-traditional, and the area I was in was traditional. Um, they provided some guidance, but not a lot. I was kind of on my own and just had to make it work. But I would say um, my husband was really good at, at helping support me as far as when I needed to take my classes. Um, and he would we would balance it. He would watch the kids and I would take the classes. And then there was a period of time when he was also in school at the same time. So we'd go back and forth on who was watching the kids and who was taking classes. Um, so he always supports whatever um, classes or programs I decide to go into. So I guess he's the biggest supporter. But as far as the mentoring on how to study and how to um, get through, I just kind of figured that out on my own. But he's really good. He, he was a technical writer. So when I need edits, because I kind of get lost in, in my paper writing, that he's really good at editing and helping me give me focus on my paper. So he does provide a lot of uh, guidance on that. But the rest, I just, 
I was lucky enough to work at a university. And that's what I tell any student um, or any person I meet that thinks about going back to college. I'm like, try, try and get a job at the university so you can at least see what's going on. And then sometimes they have a tuition benefit um, because so many people can't pay for it. And if mm-hmm. there's a tuition benefit, you know, take advantage of it. And you, you see these students. So you're like around them and you learn by watching students and see what they're doing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I try and mentor other people into, the, into taking classes. That's great. I love that you're kind of giving it back and mentoring. I try. <laughs> um, so here's an interesting question that I've I've been asked and you know had some discussions about. I, I you know like you I only I started out in engineering. Of course, then I went on to go into the field of education. And, you know, we talk a lot about women dropping out of, you know, STEM and the leaky pipeline and, you know, what, what does it mean to have a, a STEM identity? And so I've had people ask me, like, do I identify as an engineer even though I'm not actively working in the profession? You know, do I think okay. of myself that way? And so I'm just curious, do you identify as a scientist or somebody who works in the, you know, in that field of study? Um, you know, when I was a teacher, I did more so, um, but at, at a lower level, of course. And it wasn't until I started teaching science communication that I started re-identifying that um, as a possibility. Um, I feel like having studied science informs, you know, how I look at the world um, and how I try and process information. Um I, yeah, I guess I still do think of myself as a scientist because I'm, I'm still, I'm, I guess I'm in the social science area now, um, but there's so much overlap. Um, and I feel like if I can read, uh, if I go to a science conference and I can read someone's uh, paper or go to their talk and I can follow along, well, I feel like I'm a scientist. I'm just not doing research. You know, that's the only difference. I'm, I can read their stuff. I can understand it. I can make sense of it and translate it if I have to, if I don't automatically understand it. So I feel like in a way that makes me a scientist, the only thing I'm not doing is, is research. Okay. That's, that's an interesting way to think about it also, right? Like you right. don't have to be doing research to be a scientist or an engineer or something of that effect. Um, so before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't chatted about that you want to share? Or I'd love to hear if there's a book you've read recently or an article or, you know, some sort of story or something that you'd like to share? Well, um, I do read a lot. I'm trying to do the, uh, I do Goodreads and you mm-hmm. have a yearly challenge. <laughs> so this year I have a 52 book challenge um, and I was doing great. But then I was reading a trilogy and I got stuck on the third book. Um, it's just, it's really good. It's just it's it's not the it's a science fiction book. I love science fiction, um, but the way the author writes, it's not easy to. Um, it's not a quick read, so I just suddenly got stuck in the third book, um, and so it's the Southern Reach series. You know the movie Annihilation they, that's out in the theaters right now. Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, well, they made the first book into a movie. So I'm trying to finish the third one because the first book was fantastic, but I don't know how they made it into a whole movie. So I'm like, what if they use the whole series to make the movie? So I'm trying to finish the whole series before I go see the movie. Um, And then I did read an article today. I don't, I mean, it's kind of, 
it's kind of a food for thought type of article and it's related to a little bit of what we talked about. Um, and it was on my Twitter feed and I've been following the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so someone posted an article about how scholars sustained white supremacy. Um, I know it's not science related, but it really resonated with me um, because I'm a librarian and I'm supposed to, that's what I teach. And th that's how we started. He's like, this library had this book and then he opened the book and, and the person who wrote it, which I can't remember their name, um, said, oh my goodness, I read this. This was my social science book from like sixth grade. I wrote a report on it. And apparently it was horribly racist and biased. And so um, it just, I, as a librarian, that's what I'm supposed to teach is how to evaluate information. And this whole article is about textbooks and how um, some of these schools are using textbooks and how do they evaluate them? And, you know, there's all the cost involved. Um, and then it also reminded me of my teaching. And when I was a teacher, I actually knew that this was a thing. And I told my students. So when you teach science and you're teaching the history of science, it's all from like the Eurocentric viewpoint. I mean, you may start in Greece, but then you like skip ahead and suddenly you're in the Enlightenment and, and you're talking about Newton or Copernicus or, or like Niels Bohr. I'm, I'm going a little bit later or more recent. And then I was like, okay, students, I want to tell you that there's a whole wealth of science and inventions that happened like the dark ages in Europe. They weren't the dark ages everywhere else. But unfortunately, as a teacher, I was so busy. I never had time to look up like the, the Middle East when they had their golden age and, and they had all these advancements in medicine and health and science or North Africa or China. And all I could do is tell the students that this existed. But I really wish I had looked it up now because this was a good eight years ago. And what's going on now and all of this, uh, well, there's a lot of issues right now with not trusting people from other races or from other backgrounds. And I really wish I had talked to these students and taught them, you know, about all these other cultures and what advances they gave to um, the sciences. Um, so that's why that story stuck with me. And I had read it this morning. So it was interesting. They're asking that question right now because it's just, I really wish I could have uh, said more. And I know it's not about the whole white supremacy topic, but I know there's just that Eurocentric way that we teach in elementary school and secondary education that sometimes they don't get to until uh, post-secondary, like you don't get to clean that up and like, you know, fix people's perspective of the Eurocentric um, model. So it's kind of, it's kind of not a great way to end. <laughs> um. That's a really um, important and interesting topic, though. I feel like we might have to have you back to dig a little bit more. more oh, yeah, into give me that. time to prepare for that, though. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah. And I uh, went fast. It does, right? It does. It yeah, does. I was like, how yeah. am I going to talk for this long? And all of a sudden, oh, oh my goodness, it's enough. <laughs> Um, but we really appreciate what you've shared about your story with us and our listeners. And yep. for, for resources and reads mentioned in this episode, we'll be sure to curate uh, these in the show notes, which can be found on our website, 3wedu.wordpress.com. This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women and about wine. So we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what voices, stories, ideas, questions, and wine facts you hope we'll dig into next. Share on Twitter at 3WEDU or on the hashtag 3WEDU, and we'll always welcome love or messages by email at invinofabulum at gmail.com. 
To stay tuned to the next episode, please subscribe to the hashtag 3WEDU podcast via Apple Podcasts, or you can episode directly on SoundCloud. And remember, in wine, there is a story. In vino, fabulous.